Please take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to Galatians chapter 4 and verse 17. Whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, human beings are impressionable people, creatures, creations. Every day we sit under the influence of ideas espoused by people and those ideas affect us. Political influences, moral influences, ideological influences, spiritual influences. We uh, all have in our minds that we are objective, that we are rational people who won't be easily swayed by opinions that are not our own. But history bears out that people aren't really like that, are they? They're, they're not very objective and rational They are not necessarily uh, hard to influence or persuade. People are, as a rule, deeply impressionable. And as you think about who you are, you will find that much of who you are can be linked rather directly to others who have influenced you to become the way that you are today. We take on character traits. We take on ideals. Even sometimes the mannerisms of those we admire or those we listen to. Children, you will spend the rest of your lives realizing just how much you have been influenced by your parents. Maybe not the way they make decisions, but their mannerisms, their comforts. Many of the things that your parents were, you will become simply by virtue of the fact that they raised you. It will affect how you raise your own children. It will affect how you think. It will affect how you act. One of the dynamics of getting married is you marry a person and, and then you have to merge two lives into one. You have to merge thought processes and tendencies and, and ideals. Sometimes easier, sometimes more difficult. But there's always an element in there where the spouse sees just how much family has influenced. Your friends will influence you. They'll influence your aspirations. They'll influence your thought processes. They'll influence your behavior. Church members, your pastor influences you, whether you know it or not. The way you pray, the way you read your Bible the way you think about the Bible is influenced by your pastor, by the spiritual leaders of the church, by the spiritual leaders you've placed into your life. Now what this means is that influence is really an unchangeable dynamic. Unless you lock yourself up in a room where you cannot interact with humans, human interaction will change you. It will influence you. So if you can't change the fact that you will be influenced, then it would do us all well to be careful to whatever degree we are able, with who it is that we allow to influence us. It would do us all well to be careful that we are placing ourselves under the influence of those who will influence us for good. Last time we were together in Galatians chapter 4, we we spoke of true friends. And if you recall, Paul said at the end of our time together last time in verse 16 of Galatians 4, Am I therefore become your enemy? Because I tell you the truth. 
the situation as it stood is that Paul perceived danger. And they perceived Paul as an enemy to one degree or another because they had been influenced by enemies of the gospel. And so now Paul's truth became an enemy to that which they were listening to, that which they were under the influence of. And then he tells them this in verses 17 and 18. He says, They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that ye might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. And this is what we're going to park on this evening, just these two verses, as we consider the influence of of others. Now, verse 17, they zealously affect you, but not well. This verse brings us head to head with one of those words that is largely misunderstood in the English language. It's largely misused in the English language as well. And that is the word affect with an A, affect, as contrasted with the word effect with an E. Now, effect is typically used as a noun, where affect is typically used in a verbal way. You can use effect as a noun, and you can use affect in, um, I mean, effect as a verb, and you can use affect in a uh, noun uh, or substantive way. However, typically, you'll find effect used in, an, in a, a noun form and affect used in a verbal form. And effect is typically the outcome of some action. There are some other uh, more, more distant uh, definitions, but it's typically an effect is the outcome of an action. The word affect, however, is far more broad. As we would typically think of the word affect, we would think of an affect uh, to mean the bringing about of an effect. All right? So typically, um, when we are affecting something, it is... It is acting upon something with the intent of bringing some result, an effect. And that's how we commonly think about it. But it can also have a very different meaning. The idea of affect can also mean to aim at, or to pursue, or to uh, to aspire unto, or or, or to tend unto, um, to affect unto something. Um, the, the, The idea of this is would be the where the natural extension would lead to the word affection having that word affect in there and that idea of aiming at or aspiring unto or tending unto something and this is the idea of the word as it is used here that these judaizers were zealously affecting going after aiming at pursuing them it's not that they were effecting them although there was an effect and they were certainly affecting them in that, that they were changing their mindset. But that's not what the, word, the Greek word means here. The Greek word doesn't mean to change their mindset. The Greek word means to show desire toward or to show desire unto. And so it would be this, this uh, lesser form of the word affect where what Paul was literally saying is that these Judaizers were courting them, were um, flattering them with emotional manipulation, trying to make them feel great about this false doctrine. And do you perceive the contrast here? Paul has been telling them the truth. He's not flattered them. He's not manipulated them. He has been direct with them. He's been kind to them and all of those things. We've seen that already. That that they were very kind to Paul. Paul was very kind to them. There was a great love there. But what there wasn't was emotional manipulation and flattery. He, He didn't seek 
to get them on some spiritual emotional high in order to get them to, to be convinced of the truth. The truth can stand on its own two feet. He didn't need that. The Judaizers were, were very different. So Paul comes and he just tells the truth. He tells it like it is. He's not seeking to impress them. He's not doing all of this flattery. But the Judaizers come and they're flatterers. They're, they're, they're manipulative with their words. They're making these people feel great about themselves. And they are, they are just sweeping these people along into false doctrine and into false truth. And so Paul says they zealously affect you, aim at you, uh, pursue you, desire, show desire toward you, court you, flatter you. They pursue you with passion. They pursue you with zeal. But the way that they do it is not well. Not well. Not unto good and not well. When faced with the decision between the plain truth and soft flattery, the human mind is tend to draw itself toward flattery, is it not? When faced with the decision between being made uncomfortable by being told the truth, by being told our deficiencies, by being told our needs, by being told what's best, or being made to feel good by having our deficiencies overlooked, or being confirmed in our wrong decisions, our flesh will choose flattery every time. But though that is what the flesh wants, we must understand exactly how damaging such flattery is to us. That false teaching and emotional manipulation indeed seek us strongly, but not for our own good. Last week we talked about what it means to be a true friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, we quoted in Proverbs. But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. We do no one any good if we are lying to them in order to build them up in false ideas, in order to flatter them with false security, false hope, false happiness. We do no one any good. And this is the idea. These, these false teachers were zealously going after them with error. Paul says, am I your enemy because I tell you the truth? Much rather, Paul goes on to say, yea, they would exclude you that ye might affect them. Now the idea here is that the false teacher will not just pour on you his zealous flattery, but he will do so in a manner that will seek to cut you off from other truth claims in order that he can have you for himself. See, the important, uh, one of the important elements of false teaching is that you have to make truth sound wrong or sound false or you have to keep people from truth enough that they don't realize it's true because that threatens the false teacher. They have no... Truth can stand on its own two feet. False doctrine can't. False doctrine, false teaching is dependent upon the charisma of the person saying it. It is dependent upon the flash and the emotion of the persons involved. And so the persons involved in false teaching understand that if you were to get a taste of the truth, you would recognize the emptiness of their claims. So they have to exclude you from truth. The text tells us that they do this so that you might affect them. Now, if we think of this word as to bring about an effect, it doesn't make any sense. But if we learn, if we recognize that the word affect here means to show desire unto then we understand here that you might, they show desire to you, but not well. They will exclude you, 
They will shut you out from, from other truth claims. They will shut you out from others so that you will love them, so that you will pursue them, so that you will desire them. Having spent much time in the world of criminal justice, as I was studying this passage, an interesting similarity came to mind, and I wasn't sure if I wanted to share this, but I think I'm going to. I, I hope that it, it doesn't d- disturb anyone um, this evening, but when, when I, I think of this idea of a false teacher shutting people out, excluding them so that they don't have the truth, I think of many who I speak with on Wednesdays, particularly when I'm talking to the young ladies who have abusive men in their lives. Men who don't want her to spend time with her friends, who don't want anyone or anything that he, that he would perceive competes with his ability to receive attention and affection from his wife. And the reason why he must so sh- be so strongly involved in cutting her off from friends and family is because he knows how poorly he treats her and that her affection will be easily turned from him if she actually began receiving love from those who are showing unto her kindness and the human dignity that she deserves, much less what she deserves as a woman in understanding biblical femininity and how men are intended to treat women. And he softens his poor treatment of her with flattery, with fits of kindness, seeking to emotionally grasp her, cutting her off, excluding her, shutting her out from others so that she might affect him. It's the same thing with false teachers. They are emotionally and spiritually abusing and they shut their people out from other truth claims so that you will affect them. And in many ways, that is the picture that's being drawn here. These false teachers know that what they are giving you is not true, but they give it to you with charisma and excitement. They sell you on their ideas, but like sugar, it's sweet to the tongue, but wholly unnourishing. There's little doubt that at some point you will awaken to the emptiness that they're giving and want something better. So they seek thus to shut you out from the teaching of others, lest the truth fall upon your ears and you find in it a degree of substance and hope which goes deeper than just your feelings, deeper than emotional and spiritual manipulation. At some point, Everyone gets sick of being told that they are better than they are. They just want to hear the truth. The false teacher seeks to insulate for the purpose of getting his followers to follow his teaching alone. Truth, on the other hand, doesn't have to do this. Truth is not threatened because truth stands on its own two feet. I don't have to threaten you or shut you out because truth will stand on its own. We defend truth, but it it, it will stand whether we defend it or not. We elevate truth, but it would shine forth even if we didn't. Truth is truth. Whether it's wrapped in glittering pearls or a brown paper bag, it's still truth. So what's the solution? Well, 
And your pastor has decided the solution is that I need to be as dry and as boring as I can just so that you can know that I'm teaching the truth. No, that's, that's not it, right? I don't have to be dry and boring just so that you know that I'm teaching truth because honestly, if I, was, uh, if I have any glam, then it might be that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm manipulating you. No, it doesn't have to be that. It's about the focus though. Notice what Paul says in verse 18. He says, but it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. And not only when I am present with you. Now remember the word affected here. It doesn't mean that it's good that you are affected. It means it is good to, to, to show zealous desire toward good things. Paul makes it clear that he is not warning them against being passionate about the truth. About the things of the Spirit. About faith. He's not even warning them about teachers who would come passionately seeking to win them over. In fact, he says it's good to be zealously affected, to pursue with zeal good things. It is good that you sit under the teaching of someone who is so passionate in his message that he actively seeks to convince you of the truth. But that's only good when he's teaching truth. Paul tells them, it's not even just good when I'm present with you. This means Paul doesn't want to be the only teacher that they, that they pursue. He doesn't want to be the only teacher that can motivate them unto zeal. But zeal and passion and energy must always first pass through the filter of truth. Or else it is, without question, manipulative and dangerous and ultimately destructive. Now that doesn't mean a preacher can't give his own opinion. That doesn't mean that a preacher can't can't um, tell you what he thinks of something, but there is a line to be drawn in passion and in direction and in delivery between opinion and truth. And we need to be zealously affected. It's not wrong to be zealously affected, to zealously pursue things, but it, it's got to be the truth. Now, I would like for us to consider this evening three points of application in regard to these two verses. And as I do so, I want to do so very carefully. If we are not careful, Paul's words here can truly sound like a double standard. That Paul is saying it's okay, that he's okay with them being pursued by teachers and he's okay with them pursuing teaching as long as the ones who they're pursuing are teaching what he's teaching. And this would sound very much like the same thing he just warned them against, right? You just warned them that these people are coming and that you're being zealously affected by them. But you're saying it's not wrong to be zealously affected. It's just wrong to be zealously affected and bad. And I'm the one that's teaching good. So be zealously affected by me and my people, not by them and their people. That these teachers were excluding them or shutting them out to truth claims. But, I mean, isn't that what Paul is doing? He's trying to shut out these other guys' truth claims and he's trying to exclude them. Isn't this a double standard, Pastor? And, and that's why we need to be careful as we apply and as we understand this passage because it isn't a double standard. And let's understand why. Three points of application this evening. Our first point is this. Judge teaching against truth, not truth against teaching. Judge teaching against truth, not truth against teaching. So here's the thing about truth claims. They are only as good as the truth 
that is behind them. I can stand here all day and say that I have a full head of red curly hair. I could say, Caleb, I have a full head of red curly hair. And I could go around the room and tell each of you individually that I have a full head of red curly hair. But now, no matter how long I say it, no matter how hard I say it, we talked this morning in Sunday school about vain repetition, that people that think that for their much speaking they will be heard of God, I could, I could tell you through my much speaking and seek to convince you that I have a full head of red curly hair, but no matter how passionate I am about it, it simply isn't true and is never going to be true. I can excite you about my red curly hair and those online who don't have the unfortunate duty of seeing me every week might even readily join in my passion for my full head of red curly hair. But what is true it's not that I have a full head of red curly hair, much rather I have a head of dramatically thinning brown hair. Now I can perhaps get just as excited about my dramatically thinning brown hair as I can about red curly hair, and that's great because now I'm excited about something that is true. I'm trying to get you excited about something that is true. I don't see a lot of excited faces about my dramatically thinning brown hair this evening, but I'm sure it's in there somewhere. But even if I assumed my most monotone voice and stood in one place without so much as a twitch in my eye, and I didn't move, and my arms were at my side, and spoke so slowly that you could actually perceive the vibration in my vocal cords, and I told you about my dramatically thinning brown hair. It wouldn't change the fact <laughs> that I had dramatically thinning brown hair, right? That one was a little hard to do. Caitlin got me going there. I, I, I couldn't keep a straight face with her there. And the point of this silly illustration is this, which would have gotten a much better laugh if the Schmitz were here. All those little kids. Truth is not at the mercy of the way I tell you the truth. And we as Christians have a responsibility of judging teaching against truth, not truth against teaching. Truth is not at the mercy of how I tell it. I could get up here and I could be jumping and doing cartwheels and lighting fires on the stage and all the things that I've seen people do in the past and it doesn't change the fact that if what I'm saying is not true, it's not true. I could get up here and I could be as boring as boring could be, but if it's true, it's true. Now, it may not be as easy to digest if I'm boring as boring could be, but it doesn't change the truth. And you could say, wow, he's a really bad teacher, but that's not going to change the fact that what I'm saying is true. If it's true. And the point of all of this, you know, there are all sorts of teachers out there. There are vibrant teachers. There are dry teachers. There are teachers who give fantastic illustrations that draw you in, that make their points, that keep you on the edge of your seats. They start with an illustration at the beginning and they close it at the end and they just wrap everything in a bow with all the beautiful corners and it's just fantastic and it's perfect. There are others that are just so boring. There are teachers who just tell it like it is. There are funny teachers. There are teachers who could get a giggle out of anyone. But teaching must be, first and foremost, the truth. Seek truth first. 
then seek method. Truth first, then method. Once the teaching meets the requirement of truth, you can move to the preferences and delivery and the preferences and method, but only once it has been established that the truth is being taught. Unfortunately, throughout time, this idea has been largely turned upon its head. People have heard a charismatic teacher and they have mistaken his charisma and his passion for truth and accuracy or for substance. And because of this, much of the world has been led by the hand into the darkness of error. And Paul was regularly warning the church against this very thing, for it has been Satan's strategy from the very beginning. Do you remember the, say, the, the serpent? Serpent in the garden. All the way back to that serpent, there has always been a presentation, truth claims, ideas, Ideas that sound good. But no matter how good it sounds, if it's not true, it's not true. Paul would say this in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 12 to 14. But what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no marvel, he says, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. False teachers have since the very beginning been masquerading as truth-tellers in order to catch people in the webs of their error. They have passion. They will say the right words. They will assume the right posture. And they will preach a message full of error, changing definitions, giving partial truths, giving everything just enough to make it sound good while at the same time completely destroying the message of the truth. And Paul says it's little wonder because Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. You know, people always show, and we just got through Halloween not long ago, and they always show Satan. And when you see it in the movies and you see it in Halloween and such, you always see him as something scary, something evil, something bad. But that is not what the Bible says Satan does. Satan doesn't reveal himself as this hideous monster to scare people. He reveals himself as an angel of light. He reveals himself as something profitable, as something beautiful, as something marvelous, as something mysterious, as something enlightening, as something freeing. Because he knows that mankind will respond to that. And it's little wonder that the Prophet Muhammad got most of his wicked false teaching from an angel. And it's little wonder that Joseph Smith, the beginning of the Church of Latter-day Saints, got his teaching from an angel. And it's little wonder that we see these false teachers receiving visions from angels. Because Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. They didn't see a hideous beast telling him to translate these plates. They saw angels. 
telling them to do something false. And they did it. And they've been leading people toward hell ever since. Paul warned that Satan himself transforms into an angel of light, presenting himself in the guise of virtue and integrity in order to draw the undiscerning away from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As long as the truth of the gospel is not there, Satan will give plenty of ground. As long as people don't hear that Jesus died for their sins, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day, that He claimed He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man can come unto the Father but by Him, that it is the exclusive way to get to God the Father, as long as Satan can muddy the waters of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, as long as Satan can turn people away from that, he can give plenty of ground because he can masquerade as an angel of light. So the question then becomes, what is truth? The problem that Paul had was not that these men and women in Galatia were becoming zealously affected. The problem he had is that they were becoming zealously affected toward false teaching, which means the standard by which he wanted them to become zealously affected, it wasn't him. And this is why it's not a double standard. Because the standard was not him. The standard is and was truth. He says, get zealously affected. And it doesn't have to be just when I'm there. This isn't about me, Paul says. This isn't about me being jealous. This isn't about me uh, wanting you for myself. This is about truth. I'm jealous for you for the truth. It's not about not following them to follow me. It's about not following them because they're leading you toward error. It's about following truth. So what is truth? How can we know if a person is teaching truth or error, especially if Satan can appear in the form of an angel of light. I mean, isn't that why we have teachers, right? Teachers are there to teach truth. How can we judge a teacher against truth if we need the teacher to know truth? And this is where it truly gets exciting. Stay with me here. In the epistle of 1 John, 1 John is an epistle written to believers to teach them how they might have fullness of joy and fellowship with God. And within the context of 1 John, one of the major themes that John hits on is false teaching, which had come into the church and had ravaged the young believers through the subtle and influential teaching, namely that Jesus was not the Messiah. They denied that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh, that Messiah had come. And to these young and influential believers, John wrote this, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 25 to 27. And this is the promise that He hath promised us, even eternal life. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of Him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in Him." John tells them that they have been promised eternal life through Jesus Christ. And as he seeks to warn them against false teachers, he reminds them that they have an ally in this battle for truth who cannot fail them. And that's not a teacher on this earth. That ally is the teacher who is the Holy Spirit of God. John calls it here the anointing which they had received of Christ. And he says that this anointing is abiding in us. John tells us that this anointing will teach us all things and is truth and is no lie. That the Holy Spirit has the capacity to testify to our spirits of the truth. Now, 
This is what, this, what these verses can't mean. These verses cannot mean that we don't need teachers in the church. Because Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 tells us this. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So we know that these offices that have been given by God have been given by God specifically for the purpose of perfecting the saints for the work of the ministry and so that the body might be edified of itself in love. So we know that this is not saying in 1 John chapter 2 that we don't need teachers. And since we know that's not what it means, what does it mean? Well, it means that one of the Holy Spirit's primary ministries in your life as a believer is to testify to your spirit of the truth of the Word of God and apply this truth to your hearts. I thank the Lord for this. I'm not trying to toot my own horn this morning, but uh, this evening. But this morning, uh, I was talking to uh, one of the, the ladies in our church and we were talking about what I preached this morning, about vindication, about revenge. And as we were talking, she, we, we were talking about how difficult that can be to not, not be vengeful and to, to, to be forgiving and all of these things. And she said, she said, but I know it's true. She said, you know that little bell that rings in your heart when you hear something and you know it's true and it just rings like, yep, that's true. She said, that happened this morning. She said, I know it's true. It's in the Bible. We read the Bible and there was just that little ring. That little ring, what she was attempting to describe there, that little ring that says, yes, that, that, that's the Holy Spirit testifying of truth. That's what that is. I love it when I, read, when, when, when I get that. I love it when I'm reading a book and that happens. I love it when I'm listening to a sermon and that happens. When there's that little ring that the Holy Spirit is testifying, saying, yes, what this is saying is true. Yes, it is true. That's the Holy Spirit testifying. We call this the doctrine of illumination. That the Holy Spirit is actively illuminating the Word of God and giving you as a believer the capacity to understand spiritual things. Now, what, is, what illumination is not? Illumination is not man's Word ringing true. Illumination comes when you hear the Word of God and you hear the, the, the teaching of the Word of God and you are... The, the Holy Spirit is illuminating you to the meaning of Scripture. Illumination is tied to Scripture. So that I, I can't... You're not going to feel the ringing in your heart when I tell you that I'm a dramatically thinning brown-haired man. It's, it's true, but it's the whole, you, don't, you don't need the Holy Spirit's illumination uh, to, to notice that. Uh, and that's not the idea of the illuminating of the Holy Spirit. He's not, he's not there to illuminate you to the truth of politicians' words or to illuminate you to the truth of um, statements about physique. Uh, he's there to illuminate you to the truths of the Scripture so that when a man comes to you and he opens the Bible and he says that the Bible is saying something and it's just not ringing true. There's nothing there. It's contradicting other scriptures. He's making his point, but it, it, it's just not right. And then there's the times where a man opens the scriptures and he takes you from passage to passage and it becomes very clear from the Word of God as the Holy Spirit is teaching you that that is truth. That's the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
And I make that point specifically. The revelation is not from the Spirit. It is from the Word of God and illuminated through the Spirit. Okay? You are not receiving new revelation when you're being illuminated. The Holy Spirit's illumination is directly tied to the Scriptures. As truth is proclaimed, the Spirit of God confirms in our hearts that it is consistent with the revealed Word of God. As error is proclaimed, the Spirit of God warns our hearts of the inconsistencies with the revealed Word of God. And this means we need to be getting the Word of God into our ears and before our eyes and into our minds and into our hearts because the better we know the Word of God, the more resources we give the Spirit of God to teach us and to guide us through this life. It may be that a person falls into error not because he's not listening to the Spirit of God, but because he doesn't know the Bible. And if he doesn't know the Bible, then what does the Holy Spirit have to illuminate unto him? You've got to know the Bible. So point number one, judge teaching against truth, not truth against teaching. Point number two, seek protective teachers, but guard against hyper-protective teachers. We spoke already of the seeming paradox between Paul's warning against false teachers while simultaneously stating that one of the problems with false teachers is that they cut people off from other truth claims. The reason this is not inconsistent is because we have the Word of God. We do not evaluate truth claims agnostically. The born-again believer, by definition, has accepted Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God. Thus, the born-again believer, by definition, accepts God's Word as true. We may disagree about the interpretation of certain passages, applications and such, but we all agree that the Bible is true. Now, the good pastor teacher will guard his people against falling into false truth claims against listening and following teachers who would lead them to claims contrary to God's Word. I will feverishly warn you against certain teachers who I believe are um, either teaching no truth or partial truth so much so that you might be deceived or manipulated into following their truth claims. I will do that. I'm a shepherd. I'm going to protect my flock. All throughout the New Testament, we see, new, we see the, the writers of the New Testament warning against those who would lead their readers away from the truth. Now, this is very different from what we might call hyper-protective teachers. The hyper-protective teacher is the man who doesn't just seek to shield his people from that which contradicts this, the Bible, but he simply shields his people from other teachers. This is the man who is so protective of his people that he does not want them listening to other people who acknowledge the truths of scriptures just because those people perhaps don't agree with his applications or his interpretations. And this is an entirely another level. And, and, and another level. I didn't say that right. This is another level of protectiveness. This is where a pastor or a teacher feels threatened. And it's not the truth that's being threatened if these men believe the truth that are teaching. It's his authority that is being threatened. And that's the difference. The difference lies in the heart of the teacher himself. And I know that I don't just speak of false teachers here, okay? Even other truth teachers who have simply fallen into this unfortunate temptation to hyper-protect his people. 
The balanced teacher wants to protect his people from false truths, but he trusts the Holy Spirit and the transcendence of truth to testify to God's people of the truth and thus keep them on the right path. He will warn them against wolves in sheep's clothing. He will defend the weak and the undiscerning and the defenseless among them. But he is not threatened by other teachers, by their interpretations, by other people's teaching because he wants the loyalty of God's people to rest upon the truth itself, not upon him. The hyper-protective teacher thinks differently. He may not realize it, but he lacks trust that if he proclaims the truth of God's word, that the Holy Spirit can lead his people organically into that truth apart from being manipulated by him. He doesn't see himself as the shepherd walking in front of his sheep leading them. He sees himself as the shepherd behind his sheep poking them. While the balanced teacher encourages his people to obey the truth, he is an example to his people of the truth. The hyper-protective teacher takes it one step further and demands conformity to his claims and to his understanding of the Bible. This does not make him a bad man. It doesn't even make him a bad communicator. It doesn't even necessarily mean that what he's teaching is bad. But he, at the very least, is borrowing the same method of teaching that false teachers use, which is to exclude his people from other truth claims in order to keep them from considering anything that is not his. And this is hyper-protective. Fundamentalist pastors can fall into this trap where we start to elevate standards to the level of precept in the Bible. That we start teaching the standards that we believe our people ought to have as the precepts of God's Word. So that we tell them, if you aren't conforming to this standard, then your heart can't be right with God. And we overgeneralize. And we can sometimes even shame and manipulate. And we do it all for for well-meaning reasons. Because I don't want my people to go there. I don't want my people to get into that. I remember growing up listening to the preachers stomp in the pulpit saying, throw away your TV. Just throw it away. Mass generalization of the fact that all TV must be sin. Well-meaning people who recognize the danger that is on television. Ironically, I don't own a television today. But, to mass generalize is to assume that the Holy Spirit has no capacity in their lives to lead them into that which is right and true. And it's a dangerous place to go. And I simply use that example to say this. Even good, godly men who love their people, not false teachers, not even false doctrine, can can use this tactic. But it's not a healthy tactic. A balanced truth teacher doesn't need to do these things because the truth, compelled by the Holy Spirit's illumination, speaks for itself and stands on its own two feet. Point number one, judge teaching against truth, not truth against teaching. Point number two, seek protective teachers but guard against hyper-protective teachers. Point number three, be passionate for truth and the source of that truth. One of the claims leveled against those who are tirelessly loyal to the Word of God is that we become 
rigid. It is almost as if we are so confident in the nature of God's revelation um, and our relationship to it that we have become methodical would be a good word. As if we have God's truth down to a science. We do this and we do this and we got that and we do this and it's all there and it's God's Word and that's what we believe and it's right and we walk with the Spirit and we're, we're, we're there. And when this happens, not only are we in danger of denying the Holy Spirit's role in illuminating the Word of God, but we can also lose our passion for the reality of the living Word. Paul tells us it is good. It is good to be zealously affected always in good. It is good to sit under a teacher who is passionate and a capable communicator of the Word of God, who stirs up your emotions to go out and to do what is right, who calls you with all of his heart to follow him while he follows Christ. If, if this is all he is, if he's just a bunch of pent-up emotions springing out like a like a a coiled serpent, well, then there's a problem. But if he teaches the truth and he pairs it with passion and he pairs it with, with sincerity, well, that's just fantastic. It's good to be passionate yourself, to have zeal to serve God. It is one of the sad ironies of the Christian life that when someone first accepts Christ, they go through what we might call the honeymoon phase of Christianity or the honeymoon phase of their salvation. They're deeply zealous for the truth. They're constantly wanting to learn. They tell everyone they can about Christ. They're going up to random strangers and saying, hey, have you heard about Christ? And all of those seasoned Christians around him look, and look at him and say, well, he'll get over that. He'll settle down eventually. Just got to bear with him right now. He's, he's pretty zealous right now, but, but he'll settle down. Isn't that a shame? Why? Why settle down? We have the truth of salvation from sin and from hell. We have the key that unlocks the door to a living hope, a vibrant personal relationship with the God of the universe. Should we really just walk around as if that doesn't matter? Should we really just stare at people on their way to eternal eternal torment and ignore their plight? Is, Is that normal? Is, is that what it means to be a Christian? That we're so settled down that someone can come and interact with us and leave and we didn't even consider whether or not they were on their way to an eternal hell? Is that really normal? Is it normal that neighbors should be able to come over, have a lovely meal with us and leave without it ever even coming up that, that we're a follower of Jesus Christ? Without there being any indication to them that we are a follower of Jesus Christ? Is, is that normal? Is it normal when we see someone with zeal, that we should be eagerly anticipating the day that they'll settle down? See, because when I see someone like that, I wonder what happened to me. Where did I go? I remember my sophomore year in college lying in bed at night and literally thinking this thought. Every second I am lying here, I am loving God more. Every second is like there's just more love. Every second is more reason to love God. Haven't done that for a while. Why? It's not a good thing. I remember waking up every morning and so eagerly throwing myself into reading the Word of God and memorizing the Bible. I memorized a verse a day for an entire semester. Hundreds of verses that were gotten to my mind that, throughout that, the course of that year. Not that zealous anymore. 
And I wonder why. What's changed? I've settled down a little bit maybe. I, I wasn't even a new Christian. I was just coming to a new phase in my spiritual walk. Paul asked last week, where is that blessedness you spake of? We can ask as well, where is our blessedness? Is the Christian life exciting to you? The blessedness which you once felt that compelled you, the love that you had for Christ, the desire to do right, to read the Word of God, to know Him, is it still there? Do we love God's Word? Does His truth so strongly bubble within us that we cannot help but let it out? Don't feel guilty about that. That's exactly where you ought to be. That's what you want. That love for God and for His Word, for His truth, for His will. Zeal without truth is empty. Truth without zeal is no less true, but it's not meeting its potential. But truth, when it's coupled with zeal, is where truth becomes truly powerful. Truly effective. Paul tells us it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. You're impressionable. I'm impressionable. We're all impressionable. We're affecting others. We're being affected. Are you being affected by the right people? How are you affecting others? Do you have zeal? Are you being zealously affected? May God help us. To have passion for him. As we all. Let's pray.